0: Um, tonight's topic, uh, Skeletons in the Closet, Scandals in Church History. Um, I don't know, in terms of introducing the topic, you know, the, the Catholic Church, I guess to begin this way, the Catholic Church, if you look at what the Church has done in history, the Church has done more good for humanity than any other institution in existence, Uh, If you look at the the charities, the schools, the hospitals, and so on, that the church has done and and erected and built and carried the work on for over its 2,000 years of history, the church has done far more for humanity and for material well-being of humanity, and that's not just Catholics, that's for anybody who needs assistance, than any other single institution in in history. Um, and sometimes, sometimes when we're talking about topics like this, it's easy to forget that. Uh, but it's true. I mean, the church has done a lot of good. At the same time, though, um, the church uh, and, and the members of the church are certainly not as pure as the driven snow. Um, without a doubt, members of the church, including church leaders going all the way to the top, have failed to live, up, uh, to live out their role as disciples of Jesus Christ. Uh, and, and in one sense, this is sort of obvious. I mean, we're all sinners, uh, and none of us are perfect, and, and therefore we, we, we do things that we shouldn't do. Um, however, some of the failings of some of our fellow uh, Catholics throughout history have been horrendous in nature, uh, as, as we know. And there are plenty of examples that come to mind if you ask the average person uh, tell me something bad the Catholic Church has done. I mean, you're going you, to sort of got three standards, uh, two of which are the pinnacle. Anybody just throw out some? Inquisition. Inquisition, yeah. Number two starts with a C. Crusades. Number three starts with a G. Galileo. Galileo. Okay, and then other things uh, oppression of women, uh, failure to condemn slavery, or in fact, the, the, the approval of slavery. Um, Pius XII and his failure to condemn the Holocaust during World War II. Uh, of course, today, priestly sex scandals, obviously, in our country. Um, all sorts of things that you can name. Now, what we're going to do tonight is look at some of them and, and try to separate fact from fiction. But even when there's a lot of fiction, there's some fact. There's, there's some truth even behind the, the worst errors. The fact is... Uh, people have done horrendous things in the name of the Catholic Church throughout history. And we're going to look at some of them tonight. In the year 2000, as many of you probably know, uh, made headlines, John Paul II asked forgiveness uh, for, for the sins which um, Catholic sons and daughters of the Church had committed throughout history. And he went through some of the more egregious examples. Uh, one thing I want to point out, he, did, he, he didn't apologize. He asked forgiveness. The distinction is, you know, he, the, 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 the request was directed to our Heavenly Father. Because in many cases, the people who were uh, victims of these abuses were long dead. Uh, so there was nothing that he could do to ask forgiveness from them. So, so it was really a, a call for forgiveness that was made to God. Uh, usually it was called an apology uh, but it was much more spiritual than that. That's why it, it was, it was a, uh, an examination on behalf of the conscience of the church, in a sense. And I think that's an important uh, distinction to remember. Um, tonight, what we are go- I'm going to talk about what we are going to do and what we're not going to do. We're not going to whitewash. I'm not going to stand up and tell you uh, that everything's perfect and that um, everything you've heard about a lot of these scandals is just anti-Catholic biggory, bigotry and ignorance. Some of it is, there's no doubt, but there is, as I said already, there is uh, some degree of truth behind most of the things that are said about the church in terms of, of scandals throughout history. Um, we're not, I'm not going to excuse. My goal here is to understand, uh, try to look at the historical context and try to come to some understanding of why uh, people did the things they did when they did. Um, and, and, again, we're also going to sort out what really happened because there, there are some errors, I guess, in, in the common understanding, the conventional wisdom. Okay? And, the, and, and the final thing we're going to do, and probably, to me, the most important, is we're going to look at what is the impact of these scandals on the church's authority and our response to that authority. Okay? That's the last thing that we'll look at. Uh, but we'll begin by looking at the various scandals, and I'm going to do this by working chronologically, uh, beginning with, well, the oldest major ones, at least, and, and um, I'm going to begin with the Crusades, okay? Uh, along with the Inquisition, those are usually the two clubs that are used to bludgeon the church uh, whenever somebody has an ax to grind, or or when they're, when you're, as we did already, acknowledging the errors in church history. Um, oftentimes, uh, Crusades are seen as an act of imperialist aggression on the part of, of Christianity, of the Christendom, uh, the Catholic Church, against Jews and Muslims in Palestine. Okay, um, Especially since 9-11, uh, the word crusades is one that's really avoided. Uh, George Bush, our, our president, talked about how there's going to be a crusade, and that was really... Uh, To be frank, an imprudent word to use, because for uh, Muslims, and I'm not just talking about Osama bin Laden, but even uh, Muslims who desire peace, using the term called up all sorts of history and memories that that we as modern Christians, modern Westerners in general, really don't understand or don't think about too much. Um, There's a lot of uh, historical baggage associated with the term for some people that we as Westerners don't, aren't maybe always aware of, okay? Um, So what are the Crusades? What were the Crusades, rather? Uh, Were they an imperialist aggression or were they something else? And then what was good, or not good, what was real, what's historical, what's unhistorical, um, is how can we understand why the Crusades happened? And I would argue, Along with a number of scholars, historical scholars, uh, who have who have demonstrated that the the inquis or the Crusades rather, ultimately were defensive wars. The Crusades were de- a defensive struggle on the part of Christ- Christendom against uh, well against Muslim invaders. To be frank, if you look at the big picture, um, in the let's see here, in the year. 700, uh, Muhammad started Islam, and, and, and Islam started to spread throughout the Middle East. By the 11th century, Islam had con- Muslims, Muslims. You have to distinguish the religion between the people of the religion, just as we do with Catholics. Muslims had conquered by sword, not by persuasion, by sword, all, virtually all of, of what had been the heart of Christianity. All of Palestine, the Holy Land, all of North Africa, Egypt, and and further along the coast, and then in the other direction, um, of course, Saudi Arabia, modern-day Iraq, Iran, into uh, India, and even into China. Within a matter of centuries, Muslims had had conquered vast swaths of the Middle East, North Africa, and even the Far East. They had then moved into Europe, from the east and the west, across the, uh, into Spain, and then also up through the modern-day Balkans. And the, basically what happened was the the eastern um, emperor, the Christian emperor of of, uh, Constantinople, called out for help to the pope because the Byzantine Empire, the, the former Roman Empire in the East, had been completely decimated by, by the invading Muslims. And he called out for help because Constantinople was next to fall. So the first thing that the, the, uh, the um, Crusades were, were a reaction to a call for help on the part of Eastern Christians. What happened as a result of that then, the second thing that the Crusades were a response to, was trying to reestablish the ability of Christians to make pilgrimages to the Holy Land. Okay? When you're talking about Muslims, there are, of course, different groups, different ethnicities that you're talking or looking at. Early on, when, when Muslims first uh, took control of the Holy Land, they allowed Christians to continue to make pilgrimages to Jerusalem, to Bethlehem, to Nazareth, and so on, all, all of the shrines and, and holy places that Christians uh, wanted to make pilgrimage true, that was still allowed, but when Turkish Muslims started conquering, and including conquering their fellow Muslims, they they disallowed that. No longer would they allow Christians to travel freely to the Holy Land for pilgrimage purposes. Uh, because of this, then the Pope said, "We we we need to reassert our ability to make pilgrimage." So we're go- coming to the aid of the the. Uh, the Eastern Christians who are calling for our help, and we're trying to, to reassert the ability to make pilgrimage to the Holy Land. If, if you looked at it uh, the way one scholar has, uh, a parallel one scholar uh, came up with, imagine that um, pick, the United States conquers Saudi Arabia. We invade Saudi Arabia, okay, and we don't allow Muslims to make pilgrimages as they are called to do by their religion every year uh, insofar as they're capable make pilgr- pilgrimages to Mecca. What do you think the Muslims would do? They, they, they wouldn't be too happy. Okay. Um, that's basically what happened with the Crusades. Muslim, some Muslims had, had disallowed Christians from going to their ho- the holiest places um, on the planet as far as Christians were concerned, in terms of where Jesus lived and walked, And so this was an attempt to, to, by force of arms, to reassert the right to make pilgrimage. Again, besides um, trying to come to the aid of Eastern Christians, okay? So what you had, you had several crusades um, and footholds were established, uh, but in the process, um, some people, unfortunately, did not so good things, for lack of a better word. Uh, During one crusade, there was a, uh, a Cistercian monk who called for people to start, this is in Europe where the Crusade began uh, as people were traveling to, to the Middle East, called for people to kill Jews. Okay. Jews had nothing to do with the Crusades, but, but innocent Jewish men and women in Europe, this is again, nothing to do with the Holy Land, were being killed by mobs, basically. And, and, and these actions were condemned by the popes and by the secular rulers, the princes and the kings and the knights of the time. Okay? Uh, this was not supposed to, definitely not was not the intention of the crusades and was obviously sinful. In fact, St. Bernard, uh, the great Cistercian of the time, went to this region of Germany and basically told uh, this monk in question, whose name I don't recall, to get his butt back to the monastery uh, because what he was doing was to say the least, far from the role of a monk. Calling for people to, to mob and kill Jews is, uh, well, completely immoral. Okay? And other things like that happened. Probably the most notorious thing, the Fourth Crusade set off for the Holy Land. They got to Constantinople, and they sacked Constantinople, a fellow Christian city, the city that originally had called for, for help on the part of the church to come to its aid. And now, instead of going to the Holy Land, you see Christian soldiers um, sacking uh, Constantinople. That's the most notorious, the most egregious uh, example of something that, that wasn't supposed to happen that did. Um, you also saw in the, the, the Middle East, when Jerusalem was taken, for instance, um, the, uh, mobs of, of soldiers attacking and killing innocent Jews and Muslims. Again completely against the intentions and the directive of the, the princes who were leading the Crusades, as well as uh, of the popes and saints, other saints who had called for the Crusades. Okay? So there's, there's, again, not good and bad. I don't want to say good and bad. There are reasons, if you look at the historical context, for why the Crusades, understandable reasons, and I would argue right reasons, for why the Crusades were called. But in the process of carrying out the Crusades, you had people go way beyond the bounds of what they were called to do who committed horrendous atrocities. Again, in the name of the church. They were wearing the, the, uh, the red cross that all the Crusaders were called to wear. Uh, you know They're ostensibly going off to, to a defensive struggle to help fellow Christians and, and reestablish the right of pilgrimage. But in the process, they kill completely innocent people, deliberately. This is not like... Know, collateral damage in the sense of, you're, you're, you're trying to kill an enemy soldier and you hit somebody else by accident. This was going after innocent people um, and, and, and is completely unexcusable, okay? Um, with all of these things, obviously we could spend an entire night on each of them, but I, I don't have the time to do that. So I'm gonna move on. And again, at the end, as those of you who have been here before know, I'll, I'll open up for questions. Uh, so if there's something more you want to know about the Crusades or any of these things that I don't cover, I'd be happy to address them at the end. Historically, next, to though, is the Inquisition. And uh, I think the conventional wisdom of the Inquisition is that it was the Catholic Church attempting, basically, to torture heretics into conversion. Okay, And if they didn't convert by torture, they were killed, burned at the stake or, on, or killed on the rack or with the Iron Maiden or all sorts of other horrendous forms of torture that um, were used in that day. Okay? The first thing I want to t- point out is that when people talk about the Inquisition, usually they're thinking about the Spanish Inquisition. Okay? There, there was a medieval Inquisition, but there's also a Spanish Inquisition, okay? and, and, and it's important to distinguish them because the one that gets, uh, for lack of a better word right now, bad press is the Spanish Inquisition, and in many ways, rightly so, but, but when you look at historically, you have to understand the context out of which the Spanish Inquisition arose, and that is uh, the, the, the medieval Inquisition. And there's a great article that I would recommend to you, um, The Truth About the Spanish Inquisition by Thomas F. Madden. Um, Thomas Madden is an associate professor and chair of the Department of History at St. Louis University. So he's a historian by trade. Um, what, he has, what he has to say in this particular article is historical fact. It's something that all historians um, recognize as, as being the case. So it's an article that I would highly recommend to you if, you if you're curious about more about the Spanish Inquisition. And I'm just going to point out a few things that he mentions in the course of this article. First of all, uh, the medieval mentality, we're talking about when we're looking at the medieval Inquisition, the medieval mentality and the modern mentality are two very different things okay in the 13th 14th and 15th century religion was not just something that you did on sunday morning religion was your life it was everything religion was your science it was your philosophy it was your politics it was your identity it's who you were and not just as an individual but as a community as a people okay so when somebody attacks religion, a heretic. They're not just attacking what you do on Sunday mornings. They're attacking the heart and the way of life of the entire community, of the entire people, okay? And and you see uh, two fundamental reactions to heresy in medieval Europe, that of the secular leaders and that of the church, Okay. In other words, princes and kings and so on, how they reacted to heresy and how the church reacted to heresy. Okay. For the secular leaders, heresy was basically treason. A heretic was seen as a traitor. Again, because a heretic, is, a heretic is attacking the very way of life of the entire people. Not just their religion, but their entire way of life. Okay? So a heretic for a secular ruler is is dividing his people and causing unrest and rebellion, okay? And as a result of that, um, not just the leaders, but really the the common people would get almost a mob mentality and and seek to kill an alleged heretic. And alleged is the big problem here. What what you see when you're looking at the secular response, the the response of secular leaders um, and the common people to heresy and the heretics is a very much a mob mentality. They just, if somebody was supposedly a heretic, they would go after them. On the other hand, and in response to that, you have the the church's response to heresy. Okay, uh, the the church did not. You, the inquis- the point of the Inquisition was not to be a tool of oppression. Okay, the point of the Inquisition was to to, to find out the truth. About whether or not somebody was a heretic, and even that process to bring, in fact, to be honest, some compassion to the issue. Okay, to determine whether or not uh, uh, the the particular person was a heretic, because you, again, you had this rampant mob mentality persecution of heretics. Um, who are they, basically, to judge whether or not this person has committed actual heresy? What the church did in the 12th century was basically, the Pope commanded the bishops to take an active role in determining whether or not alleged heretics were, in fact, heretics. Okay? For for a prince, somebody who's accused of heresy deserves death. From the perspective of the church, somebody who's accused of heresy is a lost soul who needs to be saved. And that doesn't mean by killing them. Okay? Um, We'll talk about people who were killed in the Inquisition a little bit. But, but the, the church's goal with regard to the Inquisition was really to help bring lost souls back to the fold of the living. Okay, not of the dead. Um, secular authorities wanted to go after them, basically. It was the church that said, let's see what's really going on here. First of all, did, is this, did this person espouse heresy, first of all? And secondly, even if they did, Let's try to correct them and bring them back into the community, not kill them because they're a threat to the order of the community. Again, you had two very different approaches. Okay? Um, Madden notes that, uh, in fact, the medieval Inquisition saved thousands of both innocent and even not-so-innocent lives by, by preventing this mob rule from taking effect, okay? So that's, that was the medieval Inquisition. Now, um, uh, one more thing I want to, that Madden refers to, actually. Uh, the Inquisition, in terms of the legal practices that were employed, were the best available in Europe. If, if you wanted to be tried by any judicial process in the 14th century, you wanted it to be the, the, the church's Inquisition because it was the fairest, it was the most rigorous in terms of investigation and so on. Um, far more so than some of the other secular uh, judicial processes that were going on at the time. Okay? So what's the Spanish Inquisition all about? Well, in the late 15th century, uh, you had Jews who had converted to Christianity. What happened in a wave of anti-Semitism that covered all of Europe, unfortunately, uh, you had Spanish... Christians, people who were called, they're called old Christians, people who had been lifelong Christians and so on, who were not converts from Judaism. You had had Spanish Christians who became jealous of the culture and success which the Jewish Christians, the converts from Judaism, um, were having, and a result of which they started condemning them, or, or reporting them, rather, to the Inquisition. Saying, well, so-and-so is not a real Christian. He just became a Christian because he wanted to make money and avoid taxes and da-da-da-da-da, all these things. So you had people accusing fellow Christians of being dishonest Christians. Not, they were really Jews. They were still practicing Judaism, uh, even though they say they're Christians. So as a result of this, you had the, the Spanish king and queen at the time. Um, anybody know who they were? Ferdinand? Okay, yeah, what else did they do? What are they most known for, probably? Columbus, Columbus. right. Um, they hired Columbus to find India. That worked out well. Um, what you had in, in, in the late 15th century, around the year uh, 1483, Ferdinand and Isabella uh, started basically their own... Inqu- well, they requested permission from the Pope to establish an inquisition to determine... Again, this is, this is the, the right intention, I guess, to determine whether or not people who, who converted from Judaism to Christianity were really Christians or not. Okay? And that's fine. And again, you had a very rigorous, calm, cool judicial process by which that would take place. Unfortunately... Ferdinand basically wrenched control of the Inquisition away from the Pope and and made it his own arm, his own tool, okay? Um, And and this is when the abuses began. In the first 15 years of the Spanish Inquisition, uh, let me get the number here because it's not a good number, Um, 2,000 Jewish converts were killed converts from, from Judaism to Christianity. Um, honestly, who knows how many of them were, were even guilty of the charges made against them. The, 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 the strict and precise and careful judicial processes that the, that the medieval Inquisition had employed um, were really... Lap felt this. One of the Spanish Inquisition did not follow them at all, uh, and, and it really became an abused process. Whereby almost me saying that uh, such and such a person uh, was really a, a, a closet Jew—they weren't a, a, a Christian as they claimed to be—was almost enough to get them condemned. I mean, it was not quite that bad, but it was almost that bad. Okay. Uh, What happened, actually, during this process, the Pope saw what was going on, the Pope at the time, condemned it, and he he wrote a letter to the bishops in Spain saying you have got to get involved in this process because innocent Christians are being tortured and even killed. So you have to take control of the Inquisition, which is nominally a church uh, institution, take control of it um, and and get this back to the objective fair process it's supposed to be, in which the objective is not to torture and to kill, but just to, to, to make some finding and then hopefully uh, bring the people back to, to the fold if, in fact, they had strayed. Uh, when K- Ferdinand heard about it, he basically accused the Pope at the time of being bribed by Jewish gold. He wrote, he, to, wrote a letter to him, and we have the letter, and, and basically wondered, maybe you've just been bought off um, and, and mind your own business, more or less, is, is what uh, uh, Ferdinand told the king at the time. Um, from that point, the papacy, the, even every attempt of the papacy to, to involve itself in the Spanish Inquisition was fruitless. Um, nothing was, was allowed in terms of Rome getting involved in what was going on. It became completely a, a, an arm of the Spanish monarchy um, from that time forward. Fortunately, though, by the year 1500, reforms were implemented, um, and and you saw a return to the the more fair, uh, strict legal process that that the medieval Inquisition was known for, um, and the Spanish Inquisition would actually, from that moment forward, be known for. Um, Interestingly, after after that year, 1500, after these reforms were implemented, in Spain, there would be people who were in jail, in the secular jails, who would, who would commit blasphemy so they could be put in the Inquisition's jails because they were that much better. You, in other, you would have people who would, who would commit sins or, or would do things that they knew would result in them being brought before the Inquisition because they wanted to get into the Inquisition's jails because they were better than the secular jails that they were stuck in. Okay. Um, The Inquisition, even the Spanish Inquisition, by the 16th century was once again regarded as being the fairest legal institution um, in Europe, apart from the the other Inquisition that was still still going on now, pretty much just in Italy, in Rome. Uh, The the Spanish Inquisition, after its horrendous first 15 years, um, sort of, Got a grip on things and, and and reformed itself, and a result of which it was once again the fairest uh, legal institution in Europe. having said that, people were still tortured and killed in the spanish inquisition and that's again where we go back to we can't whitewash um, today we we understand we, we, we believe in religious toleration um, and obviously that's a good thing, and the church has has fir- firmly and completely in, in terms of church teaching, endorsed religious toleration. However, at that time, uh, society, wasn't real, unfortunately, wasn't really there yet, and you had people who were tortured and killed. Now, we're talking about 1% to 2% of people who were brought before the Inquisition. It's a very low number. It's not the millions of people that you hear about. Nonetheless, we can't avoid the fact that people in the name of the church uh, did torture and kill fellow Christians. That's another thing that's important to remember. The, the, the Inquisition in Spain never went after Jews. People who said, you know, I'm Jewish, I've always been Jewish, you know, I haven't ever converted to Christianity. They, 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 they were never brought um, before the Inquisition because the, the purpose of the Inquisition was to, to question whether or not somebody who claimed to be Christian really was. Okay. Now, the, the Inquisition later in Spain, later in the 16th century, um, basically also served to prevent Protestantism from coming into Spain. And it was pretty efficient at that, in one sense, unfortunately, uh, because of the methods it employed. But that's where, the black, or the, that's where the bad name of the Inquisition comes from because it became a, 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 a tool to use against Protestantism. And the Protestant nations, especially England, created what no, historians now call the black legend about Spain. Uh, Spain, uh, even today, I think many, when many people think about Spain in the medieval period and 16th century, think of it as backwards, corrupt, uh, and so on. That was not the case, but the English did a very good job of making people think it was the case, unfortunately. Um, so in brief, that's Inquisition. Uh, people were killed? No, no. <laughs> but uh, it, not as many as, uh, in fact... Uh, I think probably many of us today believe. Um, In in terms of numbers, we're talking in in the Spanish Inquisition, over the course of uh, 350 years, about 4,000 people. Over 350 years. In one sense, that's not too bad. However, we're talking about, again, people who, uh, this was in the name of investigating somebody's faith, and it's not a, well to kill people for that, duh, okay? Um, so that's, that, that in, in brief, that's the Inquisition. Again, if you have more questions, um, I'd be happy to address them uh, in, in a few minutes. The other thing I wanted to talk about, though, um, one, of the, one of the next things was the case of Galileo. Okay, and uh, Galileo, this is another instance where much of the conventional wisdom is wrong. And I'm going to give you the historical background. First of all, Galileo, as you know, was condemned for saying that the sun rotated, no, the earth rotated around the sun. He was condemned for that. And and, and I'll talk about how uh, that was an unjust ruling. But what I want to do first is give the historical background. Um, Copernicus, in the year 1543, first posited the idea of the earth rotating around the sun. It's called heliocentrism, as you might re- remember from your high school uh, science classes. Okay? So the idea that the earth rotates around the sun was not new with Galileo. It had been proposed by Copernicus um, some 60, 70 years before Galileo started talking about it. Copernicus, as you may know, was not thrown in jail or was not in any other way punished for the theory of heliocentrism. Um, at that time, the general view was geocentrism. The sun rotates around everything. The entire universe rotates around the earth. Uh, but Copernicus was the, was the first in that period to, to argue that heliocentrism is in fact uh, the, the case. Okay? So what was the deal with Galileo? Well, Galileo in the year 1610 um, built his own telescope scope, and he started uh, looking at the planets and the moon and so on and started making some discoveries that hadn't been known up to that point. For example, uh, people believed before that the moon was a perfect sphere. Um, with his telesco- telescope, Galileo saw all the marks, you know, all, all the mountains and, and craters and so on in the, in the moon and, and pointed out, well, this, this was his first big discovery actually, the moon is pockmarked. Okay, um, the second big discovery that, uh, of Galileo's was that Jupiter had moons. Okay, why would that have been significant? Anybody have any idea? Because it makes Jupiter another planet. It makes Jupiter another planet, and the moons of Jupiter don't revolve around the Earth; they revolve around Jupiter. So again, for geocentrism, this is a bit of a problem because we thought everything rotated around the Earth. But here you have moons rotating around another celestial body. Okay, and the other thing he found by looking at the phases of the planet Zenus, Zenus uh it's the 11th planet uh, that Galileo was able to see. Um, <laughs> Venus, uh, he was able to corroborate what Copernicus had said about uh, heliocentrism. Okay, so he, he puts these things out, moons pockmarked, Jupiter has moons that rotate around it. And because we look at Venus's phases, we, we can verify to some degree, we can more furly, further verify uh, that the Earth rotates and Venus and the other planets rotate around the Sun. Um, there, one of the leading astronomers of the time was actually a Jesuit who worked in well, actually, you might not know this. The Vatican had as, had and has an observatory. The best astronomers of the day were hired by were, were priests. Jesuit priests, even. Ooh. Um, and, and the leading Jesuit astronomer of the time, when he heard about Galileo's findings and examined them, his response was, Well, yeah, that's right. It wasn't, Oh my gosh, this is horrible, throw this guy in prison. I mean, the, the, the astronomers of the day, including the Jesuit priests who were the leading astronomers, some of the leading astronomers of the time, um, acknowledged that. Uh, Galileo's findings were correct. They looked at, looked at his, his formulas and, and so on and, and, and agreed with him. Um, the next year in 1611, Galileo went to Rome. And uh, he got a private audience with the Pope where he basically got a, a good pat on the back, good job, keep it up. Okay, This is a year after he, Galileo makes these claims. Okay, So he was well-received by not just the Pope, but really all of the hierarchy in the church at the time um, thought, thought Galileo, recognized that Galileo uh, had, had found some interesting, discovered some interesting things um, and, and they basically gave him a you know, two thumbs up, good job um, for what he was doing. The problems arose when Galileo basically tried to convert everybody to heliocentrism and tell them that this was a fact and you have to accept it. Why was that a problem? Because frankly when you think about it isn't that what people who, when they find discoveries, always try to do? Look, this, look at this, this is true, um, believe this because for these reasons. At first, it, it doesn't sound so bad. The problem, though, um, is twofold. First of all, the way Galileo went about trying to make his case, and secondly, the mentality of the time. Remember, everybody has been brought up with the mentality that the earth is the center of the universe, and everything else revolves around the earth. Every, the Earth is at the heart of of not ju- well of everything basically, and everything else rotates around it. Now you have a guy who is who is challenging what people believed about their place in the universe okay The Earth is just one planet that rotates around the sun um, and it's sort of the you have people start to question uh, well all sorts of things it, it shook their faith not just in the sense of Religious faith, but shook the, the, basically their entire state of mind. Okay? People were really bothered. As surprising as it sounds to us today, people were really troubled and bothered by the claim that the earth rotates around the sun. Okay? Galileo, it would have been nice if he kept human nature in mind, but he did He basically said, you've got to accept this. This is the way it is. And, 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 and he ridiculed other people, including people in the church who had been his friends. He would ridicule them and mock them um, and attack them because they failed to say, you know what, Galileo, you're exactly right. If you didn't accept him, he went after you. Okay? And just if you're trying to persuade somebody, you know, the vinegar, honey thing, um, there are some ways to do it and there are some ways not to do it. And Galileo was a very irascible guy um, who who was basically very imprudent in the means by which he tried to convince people. The other thing, too, here, by the way, he basically left, in terms of the church's response, the the church had two options, accept heliocentrism as proven beyond a doubt fact or reject it entirely. The problem is there were problems with the, the Galileo's theory of heliocentrism, problems that weren't resolved by scientists for two centuries 200, 250 years it took before some of the mathematical problems uh, that Galileo had had uh, in his theory, it took that long for them to be resolved. Okay? It wasn't as if he presented an open and shut case. There were problems with his case for heliocentrism that it took a little while for, for people to be able, to, scientists to be able to resolve. But Gal- the, the church actually offered Galileo a third option. The church did say, listen, let's just consider heliocentrism a hypothesis until further proof can be given. Okay? We're willing to consider it a, it's a theory. It, it, it could be true. But before we're going to say it's fact, let's, let's make sure it is. Let's try to find more proof. And Galileo had none of that. He was, he was convinced on the evidence he had found that heliocentrism was true, and he demanded that it be accepted. Okay, and then the problem started, he started making theological claims, okay, a couple years later, around 1614, he starts making claims about scripture, and this is when the church really starts to get, if you know, listen buddy, you're a scientist, we'll handle the theology, was kind of the attitude, and again, that's not necessarily, uh, the the church, the, the, the leaders of the church who were involved in this could have handled that better as well, okay, um, the result of this, Galileo was tried twice, 1616 and 1633, and he was actually condemned as suspected of heresy, even though heliocentrism was never regarded as heresy. And I think this is the part of the problem on the, the, the panel of cardinals who investigated Galileo said he accused him of, of, of getting close to heresy, even though the theory he was proposing wasn't viewed by the church as heretical. Again, So this is a mark against the, that, that particular commission. Um, Galileo's sentence, on the other hand, though, wasn't exactly rigorous. Uh, he was confined to house arrest in an apartment that overlooked the Vatican Gardens. Okay. I lived, for Rome in th- lived in Rome for three years. I got to go to the Vatican Gardens once, and Galileo got to live there for 15 years. <laughs> Um, of course, he was under house arrest, but the point is, he, he, he had, a, he had a, a, a house servant. He was pretty much able to do what he wanted. He was just confi- confined to quarters. Again, we're not going to whitewash. It was an unjust condemnation, but we also can't go too far and say he was thrown in a dungeon and left to rot uh, because he wasn't. Um, interestingly, um, in terms of it being an unjust ruling, Galileo's books had been put on the index of forbidden books. Good Catholics weren't supposed to read his books. They were taken off later. And within a couple centuries, the church officially recognized uh, heliocentrism as a fact and not a hypothesis. Um, so, and that's well before, we're talking about the early 19th century. So the, the church officially um, recognized the findings that Galileo had, had made um, and, and noted that. The, the unfortunate thing is that it's the mistakes made have been used against the church uh, even up to our own time okay um, just a couple more things just because I don't want to keep too long and I want to hear, get to your questions um, one of the more common charges that we hear today in terms of scandals is about Pius the 12th and the Holocaust um, the claim is often made that Pius the 12th uh, some of you may have heard of her book Hitler's Pope there's a book that came out from a, an ex-priest called Hitler's Pope in which uh, uh, this, this author basically claims that Pius XII furthered Hitler's cause and because he didn't condemn the, the Holocaust, um, thousands, millions of Jews obviously lost their lives because of, of Pius XII's inaction uh, in terms of condemning the Holocaust. Um, prior to 1963, the exact opposite was the understanding, okay? There was a Jewish scholar who, um, after World War II, concluded that Pius XII was responsible for saving at least 700,000 Jewish lives, and maybe as many as 860,000 Jewish lives. It's nearly a million Jews were saved from the Holocaust because of the actions of Pius XII. In, in 1945, the year the war ended, the chief rabbi of, uh, of the time, expressed his gratitude for Pius XII's work on behalf of the Jews. The Jewish World Congress in that year gave $20,000, which doesn't sound like a lot today, but remember 1945, $20,000 to Vatican charities and thanks for Pius XII's work. Um, Pius XII was called officially a, a righteous Gentile um, by various Jewish leaders. The, the first, you remember the state of Israel was established in 1948. A number of the early prime ministers of Israel praised Pius XII. Albert Einstein, the great scientist, Jewish scientist, uh, praised Pius XII for what he did in terms of, of saving Jews from the Holocaust. In 1963, a German playwright came out with a play called The Deputy, in which he basically, in the play, uh, Pius XII is, is condemned for not for not doing enough to save Jews. And now what we, we, we get what we have today, where that's sort of, well, that's what everybody thinks. Pius XII uh, didn't do enough and maybe was complacent in the death, in the Holocaust. When prior to 1963, you had Jewish leaders from around the world, including the new state of Israel, praising the man for what he did. When he died in 1958, um, all sorts of eulogies, basically, were sent to the Vatican from various Jewish leaders in Israel, in the United States, and so on, um, praising him for what he did, giving thanks for, for what he did, okay? Um, in, in Israel, 700,000 trees were planted in recognition of the, the, the minimal number of Jewish lives that have been saved because of the actions of Pius XII, 12. Okay? The final uh, example I want to give, and I had some others um, that I wanted to talk about, but we're getting running out of time, um, is one where really there is no, well, this is all, th- there's myth here and there's fiction. And that is um, today, well, today is in a sense ongoing priestly sex abuse scandal. Um, I think we all know what's, what's happened. Over the last several decades, we had priests, a number of priests, dozens of priests, who molested hundreds and maybe even thousands of of kids. Um, And bishops who, instead of reporting these priests to the authorities, um, didn't do so and just moved them to other assignments, okay? Um, And I think it's self-evident what bad judgment that was, okay? I will say two things in terms of trying to understand and not excuse. First of all, if you, the historical context of the Catholic Church in this country, the, the bishops were afraid of the state of civil authorities starting to exercise control over the church. That's why they didn't report priests to authorities as they should have. Secondly, the priests, the bishops, frankly, were given bad advice by psychologists who said that these priests could be cured. So in the 80s, you had a lot of these um, pedophiles sent to treatment centers and, and, and psychologists would treat them, sitting up and say, this guy's cured, and then he'd get a new assignment and molest more kids, and usually boys. Um, now, to me that's putting too much trust in, uh, uh, in psychological theory, because obviously what happened, whether or not uh, pedophilia is curable in terms of a mental illness, is beside the point. These are horrendous things, and you don't wanna risk the same thing happening again, which is exactly what did happen, okay? Um, So what you had is men of God, men of the cloth, committing horrible crimes themselves, and then their leaders, bishops, um, not covering up, well, to some degree, covering up these crimes and sins um, that were committed by these priests, okay? To be, well, in one sense, this is nothing new in church history, in one sense. Um, we've had bishops, priests, and even popes who are notorious for immoral behavior. Not necessarily always pedophilia, uh, but definitely unbelievable uh, immoral behavior throughout history. There have been a th- not many, on one hand, but on the other hand, one is too many. We've had more than one pope. Uh, who had multiple affairs, multiple children. Probably the worst example is Pope Alexander VII, who lived in the uh, late 15th century. Uh, And there's just not much good to be said about the guy. I mean, he he had sexual liaisons with multiple women, had like seven or eight kids, some of which he uh, went, some of the boys, his sons, uh, he went on when they grew up, made them uh, priests and bishops and so on. In other parts of Europe throughout history, uh, in the 15th century in particular, you would have bishops who would pay to have multiple dioceses. Okay? We're waiting for a bishop here in Sioux Falls. In the 15th century, you would have a guy who would be bishop of two, three, four different dioceses. Uh, be, why? Because he'd get more money that way uh, through collections and so on. You know, People complain about CFSA. What if they lived in the 15th century? Um, yeah, you, 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 there have been definitely been more than a few corrupt bishops and even popes um, in history, okay? Um, yeah. What does that mean, then, for us in terms of the church's authority, okay? And I think this is maybe one of the most important things to think about, okay? If the church, if members of the church, including popes and bishops, can do what they have done, what does that say about their authority? In a sense, okay, uh, look at it this way: Who is, who are bishops to tell us about sexual morality, or who are priests to tell us about sexual morality, when their fellow priests and bishops are abusing kids and covering it up? Okay. Um, by what right do, are, do they? What right do they have to teach us uh, about anything? Basically, um, how can they have any teaching authority if you consider the thing that, your, that the church has done? okay, if you take the various scandals and the truth that's in all of them, um, really, ultimately, it has absolutely no impact on the church's authority, okay? The church's authority and the church's ability to teach on matters of faith and morals is in no way, depe- praise God, is in no way dependent upon the holiness of its members or of its leaders, Okay? The, 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 the church's ability to teach truth about matters of faith and morals does not depend on how sinless or how holy the end, the, the people who are doing the teaching are. Okay, Alexander seventh, who had affairs with multiple women and had a bunch of kids, never taught anything that was against church teaching. Um, none of these bishops who covered up the, the sins of their priests ever taught anything against church teaching. We're talking about a body of, of bishops. Okay? The authority of the church to teach is not reduced by the unholiness of her members or her leaders. Okay? So whether or not the church's teachings are true has nothing to do with how sinful or how sinless the church's priests, bishops, and popes are. Uh, and again, I, we, we can praise God for this, because if if we depended on the holiness of bishops, priests, and popes for the authority of the church's teachings, who knows where we'd be now? Okay? The fact is that Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to the church to ensure that the church never teaches error regardless of the behavior and the actions of the members of the church. Okay? So when somebody, when somebody takes an issue uh, uh, with church teaching, and says, well, I know this is wrong because look at the Inquisition, the Crusades, church, uh, the the clergy sex abuse scandals. It's a non-sequitur. They're completely unrelated in terms of how do we know what the church teaches is true. It's true that the church's credibility is is harmed by these scandals. I mean, people, Catholics and others, are going to be less inclined to believe popes when they're having kids, obviously out of wedlock. They're supposed to be celibate or bishops when they're moving. Look what happened to Cardinal Law. I mean, Cardinal Law in Boston basically had no credibility whatsoever because of his inaction with regard to pedophile priests in his archdiocese. So the credibility of the church can be lessened. And and by the way, to me, that's why it's so important for us to have a proper understanding of what's true and what's false about these scandals. So that when people bring up, well, you know, uh, the Inquisition killed 9 million women. Did you know that? Uh, No, it didn't. it, it, it killed a, a few thousand, which isn't good, but it's not nine million people that people claim, or other things like that. We do need to be prepared to, to separate truth from, from fiction, um, but regardless of that, what the church teaches remains true despite the failings of the members of the church. Okay? A good example of that that I
1: once heard is a parent can teach a child, their child not to tell them that lying is wrong, even though
0: the parent occasionally falls into the
1: same Absolutely. The, the parent's sinfulness has nothing to do with the tr- church teaching either, and that, and anybody can relate to, no matter their faith, their right. lack of faith, right. um, and so that's, that's a great example, that, that's yeah. the best example I can think of yeah. to explain to somebody else what you're trying that's, to say about yeah.
0: That teaching. Did you in the back hear that example? Okay. What I want to thank you for your attention. I want to open up for questions. What I want to do. Um, Rick has a microphone. Wait for him to get to you. Now you're not necessarily going to hear the person asking the question over. I'll repeat it for you. This is for the video. Question.
2: Yes. Um, I had several. Uh, as far as the uh, pedophile priests, is that an accurate statement? Truly. Uh, I'm thinking. Yeah. I've read an awful lot about the age of the men, mostly that were abused were teenagers. Isn't there another name?
0: Ephebophilia. Yeah. Or yeah, if yeah, technically pedophile priests is an inaccurate term because most of, most of the kids who were most of the kids who were molested were um, teenagers oh. and. Right, right. Boy, which, yeah. Which boy brings teenagers. out the point of
2: homosexuality. Yeah, it brings
0: up the question of homosexuality, and the, and the, and there's a, another term for um, attraction to teenage boys. It's called uh, which is actually what most of these priests, some of these. Now, some of the uh, some of the abuse was against girls and younger kids, but most was teenage boys. That's right. Was there an, another question? I had
2: one more about the Inquisition. Yeah. Um, Saint Teresa of Avila was living during the Spanish Inquisition, isn't yep. that right? Yep. And her her writings, for which she's been proclaimed a doctor of the Church, were under the Spanish the, Inquisition. Saint Teresa of Avila
0: was her writings were brought before the Inquisition. Now she was um, vindicated, yes. but but questions were raised, and that's part of I mean the the in a sense the beauty of the Inquisition. Questions were raised; they'd investigate and. Obviously in the case of Saint Teresa of Avila, she was absolved of, of heresy.
2: And she was brought those were brought to the Inquisition simply because somebody was a little shaky about right. and the that's writings. where and that's where what I
0: was saying about the the first fifteen years of the Inquisition, it was really easy for get somebody condemned. Now by Teresa's time, um, Thank goodness, just whispering something about somebody wasn't enough to get them condemned. They, went, they, they reestablished the proper juridical procedures to do an authentic investigation. In the back. I was just wondering if you could expound a little further on how Pope Pius XII saved those oh, Jews, yeah. please. Uh, what Pius XII did, um, it, sometimes it was simply giving directives to, to priests and bishops to hide Jews. Um, sometimes it was issuing baptismal certificates, obviously fake, because these are Jews who remain Jews, but baptismal certificates whereby a Jew could use it to uh, avoid Nazi persecution. Uh, if you had a baptismal certificate, obviously you weren't Jewish, so they could uh, escape that way. Um, those are the two most common things. That, sort of, uh, I don't. Underground Railroad, in a sense, to get them out of, uh, well, Nazi-controlled Italy, and even Germany, uh, and other places. Do you want to add to that?
1: Um, Yeah, there's a a very good book um, called The Pope and the Holocaust. Father John Rader from our diocese co-wrote it with, is it Catherine Freiberg, or Freiberg, or something on that order? Anyway, Hurley's has got to have it, and they did it. That was an excellently well-researched. You read that book? about uh, what the Pope actually did during the Holocaust, and um, how he had, he had hundreds of Jews hiding at the Vatican, right. even at one point, and how every time he preached against the Holocaust, uh, things got bad for Catholic priests and bishops in Germany, and then they would write to the Pope saying, please shut up, you're making it worse. Right. Um, you know, and, and so if anybody's interested in more about that, that's an excellent book. I'm sure it's called The Pope and the Holocaust. I buy it and give it away so often that I don't have a copy right now, but... Um,
0: and there, there are all sorts of other books. Uh, we Actually, last or, yeah, last week, Ronald Richlick is, uh, is uh, a lawyer who has written actually a number of books on this issue, and he spoke at Our Lady of Guadalupe. Um a rabbi, Rabbi David Dalin, D-A-L-I-N, has written articles, I've got one here, but also a, a book um, explaining how uh, Pius XII, what he did to save Jews. Uh, there are all sorts of books out there to counteract, unfortunately, things like Hitler's Pope and the other, really, myths that are out there. Again, prior to 1963, Jews, Catholics, everybody recognized that Pius XII has saved hundreds of thousands of Jewish lives And yet, simply as a result of one play, um, things changed. Any other questions? Another question in the back. Just wait, wait, wait. I didn't hear you bring up anything about the divine right of kings, which was also at that point in time. uh, And as far as the church in relationship, church people and the emperor, they're never ever was a separation between church and state. And you also had popes who were, they were not only the religious leader, but also the political leader of the Holy Roman Empire. Yeah, but not by the, not by the second millennium, though. I mean, you know, when you're talking about the medieval inquisition, I mean, you definitely had, like, Ferdinand in Spain. Um, divine right of kings was, was later. Um, you know, kings starting to say that they're, they're empowered by God to be ruler, um, of the people, obviously, getting problems there. Um, but you, I mean, you, you in the late in the late 10th century, you start having the battles between the popes and the secular ruler. I definitely, as I said, re- religion and state were, were in, intertwined. But there were um, secular leaders by the 8th, and 9th century uh, in different parts of Europe. Now, in Rome, definitely. I mean, I, definitely, it's true that in Rome, the pope. Uh, became the de facto secular ruler, but I, but in terms of all of Europe, that that wasn't quite a, a, as much the case because of all the secular leaders. Any other questions? There's. A-
2: Last night on ABC, they were talking about this Gospel of Judas. Yes, they were. And tell us a little about okay. that, if
0: you would. Um, question was uh, last ABC. Oh, uh, prime time, right? Prime time, I think. And the nightly news, and CBS nightly news, and ABC Nightline. Uh, they talked about the Gospel of Judas, uh, which was recently discovered among many of the other documents that they're continually um, discovering and examining. From um, Egypt. There's a discovery in Egypt in the in late 1940s, early 1950s of all sorts of ancient documents. Um, one of the documents that we talked about on ABC and CBS was the Gospel of Judas, um, in which uh, we read that Judas was commanded by Jesus to hand him over, to betray him. Okay? Um, The Gospel of Judas was written uh, in, at no earlier than the mid-2nd century. Most scholars date it to the 3rd century. Okay. Jesus lived or died in around probably the year 33. This is like me writing a book about George Washington and, and making some new claim about it in terms of historicity. There is no, the, the Gospel of Judas is a Gnostic gospel, and I'll explain what that means in a minute. Uh, but it has no historical verifiability. Um, It was written centuries after Christ lived, um, and uh, and, and no reputable scholar has said about it or the other Gnostic Gospels that they represent authentic history. Dan Brown thinks they do, but Dan Brown has other issues. Um, The Gnostic Gospels, Gnosticism was... Was an early religious movement that predated Christianity, but then also took on aspects of Christianity. So it was an early Christian heresy that actually predated Christianity. Uh, and Gnosticism, all sorts of things, it encompasses all sorts of things. One of them is it, it, it downplays the body. It sees the body as bad and the soul is good. Um, it's really, and Carl talked about this, uh, Carlos and talked about this last month. It's really funny that, that Dan Brown uses the Gnostic Gospels to sort of prove goddess worship, the worship of the sacred feminine uh, and the other things, because the the gospel... Uh, yeah, those of you who were there last week will know what I'm talking about. The, the most famous Gnostic gospel is the Gospel of Thomas. In the Gospel of Thomas, at the end of the gospel, you have... Uh, the, the apostles being jealous of Mary Magdalene. And of course, Mary Magdalene plays a huge role in the Da Vinci Code. But they're jealous of Mary Magdalene, and they said, what about her? You know, why, why, What's going to happen to her? Is she going to get to heaven? And Jesus says, don't worry. Before she'll get to heaven, she has to become a man. This gospel is held out by Dan Brown and others as, as, as the epitome of, of, of authentic Christian femininity and feminism. So, yeah, so, I'll let the ladies here, yeah, you can, yeah. Uh, I, it's completely ridiculous. I mean, the, the other thing, Gnosticism really had no interest in real history. They would create these stories uh, because it fit their religious sensibilities, but they weren't really trying to say, well, this really happened. So the Gospel of Thomas, which is a Gnostic gospel, has no historical standing whatsoever. But the, the interesting thing, nonetheless, about it that, that, that I find is, Apparently, we're to believe, from what I've heard so far, we're to believe that the Gospel of Judas says that Jesus told Judas to to condemn him because Jesus says that uh, to Judas, You will condemn me. Now, in the authentic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, Jesus talks about how one of you will condemn me. And it's not seen as a command, it's seen as a prophecy of what will happen. So, even if the, Gnostic, if the Gospel of Judas was historically correct, I still don't see how you could conclude, from what I've heard at least, that it, it, it um, undermines what the church has traditionally taught about Judas. Because similar things are said in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John anyway. Any other questions?